yours and we'll be live. Just a moment. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, as often happens on Chef AJ Live, one guest is referred by another. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Doug Lyle. Every Tuesday, or at least every first Tuesday of the month, he does Straight Talk with Doug Lyle, where he answers your question. He told me about a great book he read called Marrying Myself. The protagonist is a vegan, which you don't see a lot in books, or at least uh, not yet. And the author is coming on the show, but she has more than just her story about being an author because she went from having seizures and binge eating, compulsive eating to veganism and self-love. Please welcome Chrissy Benson to the show. It's nice to see you. Thank you. So nice to be here. Yeah, it is so hard to write a book, isn't it? I mean, people... (laughs) Because, I mean, I've done it three or four times, and I mean, it can take a long time, can't it? (laughs) It took a long time. But what I realized after writing the book, that writing the book is the easy part. (laughs) It's what comes after writing the book. That's more of the challenge. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The hustle. How far in advance did you write the book before it actually came out? Oh, that's hard to answer because it went through several rounds. You know, there were some revisions. There was a major chopping. The book was too long for a genre. Publishers are very specific about word limits. So it went through several incarnations. And then it was a process of finding an agent. And then my agent requested some more revisions. So it was it was quite a while. The whole process honestly took over a decade, which I'm almost embarrassed to admit, but you know, it, it takes what it takes. No, it really does. Is this your first book? This is my first book that I actually was determined to get get out into the world. So like a lot of writers, I had a zillion projects that I started and didn't finish, but this was my debut novel. Well, congratulations. It's like birthing a baby, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it really is. Well, Dixie, who's watching live, said she enjoyed the book. We're talking about marrying myself. And I, I listened to it in an audible, to be honest. And I love the audible version. But, um, you know, I, I got some problems with some of the characters we'll talk about a little later. <laughs> oh, I'm curious now. <laughs> well, yeah. no, no, I just don't like the way some people act. But that's how life is. It? <laughs> no, it's the male characters, none of the female ones. The female ones are all heroes in that book, though. Yeah. But I thought I thought it was a lot of fun. You ever think you think this could come into a movie someday? I would love to see it as a movie. I can envision it as a movie. I think it's very cinem cinem. What's the word I'm looking for? Cinematically compatible. Um, so I kind of have have visualizations of these different scenes, and several people have mentioned that possibility to me. So I would love to see that happen. Because when I was listening to it, I was thinking who could play the characters, and I can tell you <laughs> my ideas. But who would you have be the protagonist? It's hard to say. I mean, originally I had in mind Gwyneth Paltrow because I believe she is a vegan, but I think, I think now she's kind of past the age of the protagonist. The protagonist, Julia Jones in the book is 34 years old. So I think Gwyneth Paltrow is a little old, maybe Reese Witherspoon. I'm kind of out of the loop, honestly, on Hollywood. Reese Witherspoon is good, but I think she's almost not, not, not too old as a person, but for your book, but right. How about Jennifer Lawrence? I don't, 
I don't know who that is. Hunger Games. Oh my God. She's just fabulous. Oh, Hunger Games. Yes. I did see Hunger Games. Oh, she would be amazing. Yeah. Well, let's call, let's amazing. call her. Let's <laughs> call her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about the book, but I want to know about you and your story because I'm always interested, you know, on Friday, which is like tomorrow, actually, September 1st, I will be, I will be vegan for 46 years. So I'm always interested in when people become vegan and why they become vegan. Yes. Yes. Well, like, like a lot of people, it was a journey and it really is funny to reflect back because thinking back to where I was for so long and just in those really, really just dark, hopeless days of binge eating. I'm, I'm a compulsive overeater by nature. You know, I, I know you can relate. I know a lot of us can relate. And so I went through, it was over a decade of struggling with overeating and binging and these massive crazy binges. Again, it's, I feel somewhat removed from it now for which I'm very grateful. It really does feel like history, but I I lived through it. I lived through it for years. So I, I had this issue with binge eating. And meanwhile, I had started having epileptic seizures. I hadn't grown up having them or anything like that, but I had my first one the summer before college. I had one or two during college. And then after college and during law school, subsequently, I had some more. And meanwhile, I was doing all this crazy, crazy stuff with food. So, you know, my binges, I'm, I'm, a hardcore binger. So it wasn't just, you know, a couple of extra cookies or a piece of cake. It was boxes of cookies. It wasn't pints of ice cream. It was half gallons of ice cream. It was bags of, you know, chips and, and all, all of the stuff. And I noticed over time that when I wasn't binging, because when I wasn't binging, I really tried to eat healthy. I did have an interest in health and nutrition. I was, I was a runner. I still am a runner. So I was always running. I was always eating lots of vegetables, but then I would just have these massive binges. And I noticed that as a general rule, it wasn't a one-to-one correlation between the binges and the seizures, But bigger picture, if I wasn't binging, I didn't have seizures. And meanwhile, I was seeing neurologists. They were giving me all kinds of medications. They didn't really find anything wrong with my brain, but they told me I had epilepsy and needed all these medications. The medications didn't really work. I knew what I was doing with food, but I was too embarrassed to tell them. Eventually, I did tell them. And then to my surprise, they told me, oh, there's no connection with the the food and the seizures. There's no, no connection at all. And I knew in my heart and just my own experience that that just wasn't true. If again, if I wasn't binging, I didn't have seizures. So I reached a point where I realized, okay, if I settle for what these doctors want to give me, if I settle for what they're offering me, which is essentially a lifetime on medication, probably still with seizures and no recovery with food, then that's the best I can hope for with the doctors. And I decided, no, what I want is to be seizure-free and medication-free and healthy 
And I'm the only one who can keep my eye on that price. <laughs> like I, that's what I want. These doctors are willing to settle for a whole lot less for me, but that's what I want. And so I need to get a handle on this binging. I need to stop the binging. Then I'll stop having the seizures. Then maybe the doctors will believe me. Maybe they won't. Who cares? <laughs> I'll have gotten what I wanted. And so it took, it took some doing to say the least. It was it was far from an overnight process. It was a 12 step program. I was, I was so reluctant and ashamed to go into a 12 step program for overeating. It seems so pathetic and so ridiculous, but I remember thinking, you know, I could learn to live with being fat. Like it would suck, but I could learn to live with it, but I can't live with these seizures. You know, I, I don't want to have these seizures. So it was only the seizures that made me willing to seek help. And again, it was a long process. It was year. It was years of gradually the number of binges decreased, gradually the periods of healthy eating and just do, being sane with food increased. And I did stop having the seizures. I did stop needing any medication. I got what I wanted. And then meanwhile, Throughout much of this time, I had been vegetarian. I was a committed vegetarian, but I was an ignorant vegetarian <laughs> because my thinking was, sure, if, the, if it were a choice between starving to death and eating an animal, I'd probably eat the animal. But in this day and age, I'm not called to make that choice. So how can I justify it? So I was a committed vegetarian, but I didn't know much really anything at all about animal agriculture. And so as, as a little more information started seeping in first about the egg industry and a little later about the dairy industry, I just became increasingly uncomfortable from an ethical perspective, continuing to consume those products. And I really, really didn't want to go vegan <laughs> because I, I was a very non-vegan vegetarian. I ate what I considered healthy dairy, you know, non-fat Greek yogurt, egg whites. And I just, I had a refrigerator full of those products and it was just a question of, you know, that niggling feeling at my conscience just wasn't going away. So finally I thought to myself, okay, I know myself, I'm never going to be able to live with that, that feeling that just what I'm doing is not right. So I'm going to have to go vegan eventually may as well do it may as well just do it now. Um, so I did. And as I mentioned, I'd already had what I considered a separate interest in health and nutrition. I didn't know <laughs> that the optimal diet for human health was a whole food plant-based diet. I didn't know how toxic dairy is to our human bodies. It didn't occur to me that we're not baby cows and we shouldn't be consuming the breast milk of another species. All these things that seem obvious in hindsight just hadn't occurred to me then. So when I stopped consuming those products, by then I had already gotten a handle on my binging. So the binging and the overeating had largely subsided. I wasn't having seizures. I felt, I felt good in my body. I was at a decent weight. I was running, I was exercising. My cholesterol was high. I got my numbers checked at one point and it was over 200 which is high, 
But then the doctor looked at the specifics and said, oh, well, you've got really high HDL, the good kind of cholesterol. So it's fine. So I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's great. But what I discovered after I went vegan, um, number one, my cholesterol went down to 120, <laughs> which was wild, even though supposedly it was a good kind of cholesterol. And what I discovered too, after all of my years recovering from compulsive overeating and learning about emotional eating and mindfulness, what I discovered is if, if I eat a whole plant-based, plant-exclusive diet, without added oils and processed junk and sugars, then it's almost impossible to consume more food than my body needs. And even if I eat to the point of being uncomfortably full, which I, I like quantity, I'm a big eater, I have a hearty appetite, so I, I love to eat. But even if I really stuff myself with these wholesome foods, I don't feel bad the next day. I don't have that food hangover and I don't, I don't have seizures, you know, nothing even close to that feeling I would have prior to these seizures. So it was very interesting, just the path that my healing journey took, but you know, all, all many, one mountain, many paths. So that, that was my path, just a lot of things aligning. And then of course, after I went vegan and after I discovered that, oh, what a coincidence, you know, the, the most compassionate, loving thing for the animals also happens to be the most compassionate, loving thing for my body. And it also happens to be the best for the environment and for starving children in Africa. And it really was, it was like a spiritual experience for me, because for me, the way I articulated it to myself was that it almost proves love as a principle of physics, you know, just the most loving thing for me is the most loving thing for everybody else. And by eating vegan, I'm living in harmony and in love. And I'm just so grateful to have arrived at, at this point. Well, what took you so long? Just <laughs> I know, right? I ask myself that all the time. And yes. so how, how many years ago was it? It was in 2011 that I went vegan. Yes. What was your perception about the vegan diet before? Had you heard of it much or wasn't just something that you thought about? I thought it was, a, I thought it was extreme. I thought it was a bit extreme. I didn't think it was healthier. I thought that sure it's possible to do, but I didn't think of it as inherently healthier. Again, I thought dairy was good for you. And I thought that animal rights activists were a bit over the top. I literally, literally remember thinking the thought, you know, I'm, I'm fine with using animals. It's just killing them. If we don't need to, that's the problem. And it, it's just funny to remember the thoughts that ran through my same brain that now I'm like, how, how could I have thought that? How could I have thought that? You know, these living beings who have their own feelings and their own thoughts and their own agendas, how could I have thought that it's fine to just take them and do with them as we will? It, it makes no sense. So it, it was a process. It was a process physically and emotionally. And then I became just more educated. For me, it was really a process of education. And there was a wonderful online summit going on 
the, the year that I went vegan called vegan Palooza. And I listened to it on my headphones all day, every day while I was at work. And within those five days, I heard wonderful speakers on all different topics from animal liberation to human health, to social justice. And I came out of that experience radicalized. You know, I became just a, a radical animal rights activist. And like you said, it's, it's amazing to me that it took me so long, but that's where I landed and that's where I still am today. Well, we're glad to have you. When in your 12-step program, did they give you a specific meal plan? They tried to. I didn't know any other vegetarians. There was one woman who, unfortunately, I, I don't know her last name. So because in the 12-step programs, people don't generally share last names. So there was one woman who I knew was a vegan. And again, to me, this was before I was vegan. Um, and so I knew that she didn't eat that, that stuff, but, um, everybody else ate, ate the animal flesh and the dairy. Like I remember prior to Thanksgiving, one thing that people would always say at the meetings was, well, don't worry too much about that Thanksgiving, because remember, you know, the main dish is, you know, is abstinent. The main dish is healthy and safe. And the main dish, of course, being, you know, turkey flesh. And I just remember being really just frustrated at, at sayings like that. So they didn't, some people had specific food plants that they had tried to give me. Um, but for the most part, you are encouraged to see a nutritionist and, you know, come up with a food plan that, that worked for you. So that's, that's what I did. And again, I was pretty, pretty informed on health and nutrition. I was always a big vegetable eater and lots of whole grains. So I, so I had those components in place. And so I didn't, honestly, a lot of people in the 12 step program were not super healthy, even if they were, you know, supposedly in recovery. So again, I wanted, I wanted more for myself. I wanted to just beyond just being abstinent from compulsive overeating and not binging and having seizures. I, I wanted to be healthy. So I felt that I, I knew more from a nutrition perspective than some of the people trying to tell me what to do. Did they try to give you like a strict weighing and measuring plan? Because I love how you said you like to eat large <laughs> volumes of food, which is what I love about a plant-based diet based on the principles of calorie density is I get to eat more than everyone around me and be- Oh, yeah. Funded. Agreed. Agreed. I, I'm, I'm of the same, of the same ilk. So some, there are different facets of the different, the different 12 step food programs. So some of them are very big on weighing and measuring. I, I never, I never went for that. I, I did count calories for a long time, but I always ate unlimited vegetables. That was, that was a good habit that I picked up decades ago. I did Weight Watchers at one point. And in Weight Watchers, the vegetables are free. So I got in the habit of eating tons of vegetables and I love vegetables as well. So that, that was something for me that ruled out weighing and measuring because I always knew vegetables are going to be unlimited for me. Yeah. That's what I never understood. Like I can understand things that are hyper palatable or, you know, addictive, maybe monitoring them, but these programs that I, I hear about from these people where they make them eat seven ounces of vegetables. I mean, how is that a serving? Right. Well, what some people in the program told me was that for, 
one particular person, she said it wasn't it wasn't to limit her quantity of vegetables. It was so that she ate that many vegetables. Cause if she didn't have that you know, that seven ounces or whatever the portion was, she wouldn't eat any vegetables. Oh, that, that's interesting. So yeah. that made, that made some sense. If you're not eating any, then seven ounces is, is good. I guess that's true. That's, that would be like less than half of a, what a serving is for me. Hey, <laughs> I know. I'm wearing a bracelet that one of the viewers gave me. Thank you. It reminds us to eat to the left of the red line. So if it's not too personal, what were your binges like? Because I haven't binged in like four, almost 40 years and mine were always dessert. You know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, mean, I, mean, I was already vegan, so it wasn't going to be, you know, McDonald's. Mm-hmm. But it was, And I was never a, like a salt person, so it wasn't going to be chips and fries, but it was always like trays of brownies. Mrs. Fields, chocolate chip cookies, you know, it wasn't dairy or ice cream because I'm, I mean, I'm allergic to milk, but it was always, oh, okay. Candy yeah. cookies, pies. It was always, you know, sugar and fat combination. And usually yes, exactly yeah. that, that was me. That was me. I would throw in some salty stuff kind of when I got sick of the sugar stuff, just to kind of mix it up. And I did have, I did have dairy in my diet at that point. So um, but ice cream, ice cream would always come last. That was kind of when I couldn't fit anything else in my stomach. <laughs> I mean, they were awful. Again, it's like I'm laughing about it now, but it was just, it was such a dark place. And the amount of money that I would spend on these binges, I mean, it They're was expensive. It, you know, close. It gets really expensive. You do a couple of those in a week, it's it's hundreds of dollars. And they were mostly, they were mostly at night, mostly late at night. Then it started creeping into the daytime. And that's when I really felt like, oh, I've crossed a really bad line if I'm doing this during the daytime. So they were, I mean, they were ridiculous. Again, I feel removed from it now, but it was, it was a, it was a horrible, horrible place to be because I was doing this and I felt awful about myself. And I also felt so much guilt about what I was doing to my body because on the one hand, especially in the 12 step programs, they tell you, you know, you have a disease, it's not your fault, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I get where they're coming from on this. But at the same time, my poor body didn't deserve what I was doing to it. You know, I was abusing my body and I was making it feel so bad. And I'm not religious, but I do have a strong spiritual sensibility that my body is a gift, you know, and I feel that I have this just obligation and responsibility to treat it well, to just do right by it. And I just hated what I was doing to my body. And especially when I was having those seizures, you know, I was inflicting these seizures on my body. So I I had a lot of, a lot of shame, a lot of self-hate about it because the binges, again, the binges were ridiculous. It was the foods that you're talking about, the cookies, the cake, the the sugar and fat. It's funny because especially in 12-step programs, people talk a lot about sugar but they don't talk about sugar and fat together. <laughs> like fat, fat is okay in, in the in the circles that I was in, in those 12-step programs. But I always knew I don't just want hard candies or, or licorice. You know, I, I want, I want sugar plus fat. So that was, yeah, they were my binges as well. 
Again, it was, it was, it was just awful. I mean, and once you, once you get into the binging, I would hardly taste the food, you know, just shoving it in so fast. Well, that's what I learned from the pleasure trap. And I'm sure you're familiar with that. You know, Dr. Lyle says people aren't sugar addicts because we're not sitting around just eating hard candy and Twizzlers. It's the sugar fat combination, which never existed in nature. Right, right. And when I learned about the pleasure trap, it was, yeah, it was Dr. Lyle's YouTube video, how to lose weight without losing your mind. I discovered that video after my 12 step time, after I'd stopped the binging and the seizure. So I was in a good place with food. But when I saw that video, it just so much clicked into place that I hadn't understood to that point in time. Just like you said, the calorie density and just the fact that these foods don't exist in nature. And since we evolved in times of starvation, we evolved to respond really positively to these hyper calorie dense foods. And I was living in New York City at the time that I discovered this concept of the pleasure trap. And I learned that the dopamine response that our bodies give in response to these hyper palatable calorie dense foods is more equivalent to the response that we would get from an opiate or a drug of some sort. And living in New York City, where there are food trucks and fast food restaurants and convenience stores, like, like dozens on any given block, it's like you're bombarded with this stuff. And just walking around in New York City, seeing all that stuff, knowing that it's really more equivalent to a drug than to any sort of real food. And then also seeing all the unhealthy, overweight, just suffering human beings in New York City. I just, I just remember really being struck by like, we've gone way, way off kilter in our society. You know, everything in our society is leading people to be unhealthy and to be healthy. You've got to swim upstream. You've got to become the outlier. And I had already reconciled myself to that, but it just, it still did and does make me sad because I kind of compare being healthy in this day and age to winning at the casino. You know, it can be done on an individual basis. And once you get in a groove and learn some basic principles, it's not that hard, but in the bigger picture, just like in a casino, the house is always going to win. You know, the bigger picture, most people are going to lose. And that's how the whole model is structured. And I feel like that's how our world is. Most people are going to lose when it comes to health. And that's why I'm just so grateful to have found this path. I mean, it's just the best way to live and I love it. And I hate what's happening to animals. I hate what's happening to suffering human beings. But on a personal level, I just feel so lucky and grateful. Yeah. You know, that's why Dr. Lyle talks about that. There's no such thing as emotional eating. It's, it's, it's drug-like eating because people, like you say, they don't go to arugula anonymous. I don't know anybody that's, oh my God, I ate too many, too many mustard greens. You know, it's always these hyper palatable foods that don't exist in nature in combinations of sugar, fat, sugar, salt, sugar, fat, and salt, that kind of thing. I'm curious, did you ever struggle with the other end of the spectrum, anorexia? Did you ever have a weight problem? 
I gained, I had gained weight. I've never been anorexic. I always sort of wished that I had an eating disorder that was a little more glamorous as I saw it. I mean, I'm not minimizing anorexia. I know a lot more about it now because I'm in grad school for clinical mental health counseling. So I know that anorexia is, is horrific, but I, that was never my variety. I was, I was a straightforward compulsive overeater, binge eater. I never threw up or purged. Um, I was a regular exerciser, but nothing, nothing super crazy. Yeah. I, you know, I having had anorexia in my teens, I always felt that not, not to say worse because I'm not minimizing either, but for me, bulimia and binge eating was harder because with anorexia, I didn't have to do anything. I just didn't eat. With bulimia, it's like a full-time job, you know? Wow. Yeah. You, know, you know, the buying it, the hiding it, the sneaking it, the throwing yes. it. I, yes. I mean, it's just, it wears anorexia. You just like, don't do anything. And that, that's not, interesting. Yeah. That so, makes but, total sense. Yeah. It was the binge eating was a full-time job. I mean, the amount of thought and the amount of mental energy that went into it. And like you said, the sneaking and the hiding, oh, it was, it, again, it was awful. And for me, it was, it was probably like over a decade that I was struggling with that. And I had I had gained weight. I was probably maybe at my highest 40 to 50 pounds higher than I am now. I don't, I wasn't, I don't think anyone would have described me as obese, but you look back at photos and I definitely, definitely did not look great. I definitely was, was heavy. Yep. So uh, one of the viewers, Brenda says, Chrissy has several guest interviews now on her podcast and she's a great interviewer like here. So smart, articulate and well-read and her life is so amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Brenda. And so I did listen to an episode of your podcast and it's so funny that the one I picked, you mentioned me. It, I mean, like of all the podcasts, <laughs> I mean, how would I know? I'd listen to the one with David Jenkins because I was very interested in that topic. And you mentioned Chef AJ says, if it's in your house, it's in your mouth. And I'm <laughs> I mean, what are the chances that of all the interviews you have, I would pick that one. So I love that. Yeah. And, and Dr. Jenkins was so lovely to talk to. I mean, his, his story, he told this story of, you know, befriending this, this young, you know, Bantam hen um, and how a few weeks or maybe it was a year later, he received a Christmas hamper from his aunt and uncle where the hens had gone to live. And at the bottom of the Christmas hamper were, were several small birds. And, you know, they were from his flock of, of, of hens and, you know, how that ruined Christmas for him. Um, yeah, he was, he was wonderful to talk to. That's what I love about doing a podcast. And maybe you feel similarly, but just on a selfish level alone, I get to interact with such incredible people and hear these amazing stories. So I've really relished that aspect of podcasting. Yeah. So did you always exercise? And was that, you know, sometimes people that, that have a binging or bulimia, whatever you want to call it, compulsive eating, use exercise as a way to sort of offset it? It was, I've, I've exercised for a long time. I think I grew up with active parents. They're still active. So I had had that model. And so I, I think I knew on some level that exercise needed to be part of my life. I remember after college, when I was, I was living in Gaithersburg, Maryland for a while in my first, you know, full-time job. 
And I remember thinking to myself, well, I need to figure out a time to exercise. Really, the only windows are before work or after work. And after work, I like to be lazy. So before work, it is. So I basically instituted a routine of going running in the morning before I start my day. And that's one area of life where my compulsive nature has really served me well, because I've been a daily runner for decades now. And I can literally count on one hand, you know, the number of days that I miss um, running. I almost never miss a day of running. If I do, it's usually because of travel. So I've exercised for a long time. But as you know, you can't outrun or out exercise an unhealthy diet. So when I was in my worst of my struggles with compulsive overeating, I was running, I was exercising, but I knew just, just the math wouldn't even come close to, you know, my exercise undoing the amount of calories I was consuming because, you know, my calories, my calories in any given binge were, you know, sometimes a week's worth of calories, you know, in one sitting. So running would, would help. It would help kind of reset my metabolism and it would help, help me feel better, help me get over my food hangover. But I had no illusions that it was going to keep me thin when I was doing what I was doing with food. Yeah. How often do you, I mean, not how often, how far do you run every day? Um, usually about five miles, five or six miles, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but that's about my standard. Even if it rains, snows, even if it rains. Yes. 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 Wow. That's great. You also have a spiritual practice. You've been a meditator for quite some time. I have, I have. And it's, it's funny because again, in the worst of the throes of compulsive overeating, I had been dabbling in meditation here and there. It's encouraged in the 12 step programs. And I was living in, in Boston, Massachusetts, where there's a strong meditation community, especially in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I had dabbled in meditation, but I remember at a real low point, I had, you know, again, my food was crazy. I'd had another seizure. And one day just at really a low point, I realized, okay, I'm going to meditate every day. It was, it was kind of, kind of funny because I instituted a daily practice and it's interesting thinking back. I did a lot of things to try to get over this food insanity, but I can look back to that, the meditation, really, when I started my daily meditation practice, that was when my recovery from compulsive overeating really took off. And it which was very interesting to me because prior to that, I had been doing all these things, you know, I'd been going to 12 step meetings, journaling, like making phone calls, doing all these recommended things that aren't bad things but it was like doing, doing, doing. And so it was so funny to me that the thing that helped me most with my overeating was instituting a period of not doing every morning and just, just sitting and being with myself and meditation for me, it was, it yielded all these unexpected benefits. And one of the early ones that I remember really struck me was my self-esteem went up 
And I was, I was confused by this because I knew that meditation, you know, helps with anxiety and I'd learned about some of the benefits, but I'd never really heard about a connection between meditation and self-esteem. And I was like, what's going on? Why do I feel just more connected with myself, better with myself? And what I realized is, you know, self-esteem is about love. You know, it's about loving yourself and you can't love someone that you don't spend any quality time with. And what I realized, oh, during my daily sit in the morning where I'm just sitting there just with me, that's me being with me. <laughs> and I'm building up my love with myself just by being there with me. <laughs> and my self-esteem just markedly improved. It was very interesting. So that that's just one of the many just strange benefits I've experienced from meditation. Yes, I still still meditate um, re pretty religiously every morning. How, what does your practice look like? Is it a certain amount of time? Do you use like an app? Because for me, that's been the hardest piece the, mm. of all the things that we're told are beneficial. To right, just, right. Do well, nothing. yeah, yeah. Well, quite honestly, I've I've started, so last year, I took a course in transcendental meditation. I had studied, you know, Vipassana meditation and um, Theravada, like typical, just, you know, sitting, breathing, focusing on your breath, noticing your thoughts. And then last year, just out of curiosity, I learned transcendental meditation, TM. And I, I'm honestly still having trouble instituting a second period of meditation because in TM, you're supposed to meditate twice a day, morning and, you know, afternoon or evening. And I still have trouble getting in that second sit, but my practice is very simple. Um, I, I set a timer and then I just sit and, you know, focus on my breath. Um, it used to be, I I've gone through different periods of time. I used to do 30 minutes. I think I started out with 20 minutes and then increased to 25 and then 30 and did 30 minutes every day for a long, long time. TM advises, you know, 20 minutes twice a day. Um, so that's, that's what I've been doing these days. Wow. Do you do that first thing in the morning when you wake up? I do. Yes. Well, I also do. I also do a plank every morning. So I do a two and a half minute plank, you know, for, for core strength. So I do that. And then I, and then I do my sit. Susanna, who's watching live when they gave me this lovely bracelet asks a question. She says, asks, were your seizures dramatically reduced when you stopped binging or was it gradual? And do you remember when you made the realization that it was the food? Yeah, good question. And again, it's funny to think back because it was, it was very dramatic when it was going on. You know, sometimes if I, sometimes I was in public, people would call 911. I'd be carted off to the hospital, even though I didn't need to go to the hospital. I had all these medical bills. And I, I do remember I don't remember the specific day, but I do remember when I put that together, oh, this doesn't happen when I'm not binging. You know, there's a one-to-one -one tie because people, people tried to make me feel better about the seizures and tell me it's, it's not your fault. 
And I would, you know, especially after I was honest with some people close to me about what was happening, you know, they still would tell me it's not your fault. And I would say, well, it's not my fault that, you know, I have this propensity, but it is my fault. I had the seizure because if I wasn't doing what I was doing with food, I wouldn't have had it. So it was, yeah, it was pretty powerful for me when I realized like, if I want to stop having these seizures, I need to stop binging. That was, that was a pretty significant moment for me. Because I, I think, I think also in the back of my mind, I thought, oh shoot, how am I going to do that? Because, you know, the food was just, it was such a comfort to me. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty high strung, like meditation has helped tremendously, but just by nature, I'm prone to anxiety. I'm prone to feeling overwhelmed you know, I've gotten much better at managing all those things and learning to love all those different parts of myself and work with those parts of myself. But I, I just, food was my fail safe and not just food, but the, the binge food. So the prospect of needing to figure out how to stop doing that, I, I felt really pretty hopeless And again, that was the only thing that made me willing to go into a 12 step program because my, my family were not, they're not oriented that way. You know, my family doesn't really go to therapy. We didn't talk a lot about emotions that just wasn't, that wasn't the framework I grew up in. So I'd never seen a therapist. I'd never seen a counselor. I'd never been to a self-help program or group support program. And so just to, for me, the, again, the only thing that made me willing to do that, which I thought was so embarrassing and, and just pathetic, I thought it was pathetic. And it was only the seizures that made me willing to do it. So again, it was very dramatic at the time, but what's interesting to me is I have, I do have some emotional baggage about plenty of experiences in my life but I have very little emotional residue from the experience with the seizures. And I'm pretty certain that it's because that was, it was a long drawn out battle. It was hard and it was awful in the, in the moment, but I emerged victorious. You know, I stayed true to myself. I kept my eye on the prize. I learned to trust my own experience and my own body and I solved my problem And so that's, that's an experience that painful as it was, you know, I, I emerged intact with what I wanted. And so for me, it really feels like ancient history as, as dramatic as it was at the time. You mentioned family. Is any of your family vegan? My brother is vegan. Yes. 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 My younger brother, um, he's been vegan for quite some time. His girlfriend is vegan as well. And my parents are, you know, heading more and more in that direction. My sister is, is conscious, you know, definitely conscious, definitely better than the norm when it comes to food. My, my mom was actually going to come with me to vegan summer fest in 2020. And then unfortunately it was canceled because of everything that happened in the world. Um, So my, my parents are definitely becoming more educated. My dad read two books that 
one of which I gave him and one of which I had given my sister and he read at my sister's house, but he read a book by Dr. Joel Furman called Eat to Live. And then he also read a book called Meatonomics by David Simon, which talks about the economics of our food system and the subsidies that we give to animal agriculture. And my dad's a banker and businessman by nature. So I think Meatonomics really had an impact on him. So he even said, out loud, after reading those two books, he said, after reading those two books, I don't know how anyone could ever look at food the same way again. And so I think he he's convinced of the health benefits of the vegan whole food plant-based approach, uh, but they, they haven't quite instituted it, you know, fully, but um, they're on the path. Hopefully they'll, you know, be able to get a lot of benefits from what they're doing and, and maybe they'll become full, full-fledged vegans at some point. Who knows? You never know. It's never, you never know. Yeah. People do it in their nineties that I've known. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done 1,645 episodes of chef AJ live and people say, what was your favorite episode? Which is really hard. Cause I I'm, frankly, I sometimes can't remember all of that. <laughs> I know. But, yeah. yeah. But you've done several podcasts. Do you have a favorite episode? I, I love so many of them. I love so many of them. Um, I interviewed Dr. Jen Hawk, which was wonderful. Dr. Pam Popper. I recently interviewed Dr. Doug Lyle. That episode hasn't aired yet, but of course that was fantastic. I just interviewed a wonderful man from South Africa. Um, young man, he's in his thirties and he was a former sheep farmer in South Africa on the oldest family owned farm in South Africa. And his experience doing that prompted him to go vegan. And so I just interviewed him a couple of days ago and what a story. Um, I interviewed a music producer who lives in Poland and who's traveled all over the world and has been vegan since he was 20. Um, and, and I loved his interview. So it, I, I can't pick. I just can't pick. I fall in love with all my guests. I, I really do. Nice. You're trained in something called IFS. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and how what you do with this work? Yes, yes. So when I was living in Boston, I was contemplating doing what I'm now doing, going to grad school for clinical mental health counseling to become a therapist. And I had a therapist friend in Boston who said, don't bother with that because I've come across the most effective form of therapy and you don't need to go to grad school to learn it. You can go to a training program, get trained as a practitioner and start doing coaching using this practice. And she, she sold me on it. So I did a training. So internal family systems therapy or IFS work, it's also known as parts work. So I, I took to it immediately, just immediately. So it it teaches that we all have different parts to our personalities, almost like multiple personalities. And that each of these different parts is kind of like a human being. You know, it has its own set of thoughts and concerns and fears and worries and motives. And that once we start talking to these parts and figuring out what's going on with them, what they're trying to accomplish, then just like people, these parts that may be causing some damage in our own lives, 
they can learn more effective ways of carrying out their goals. So just as one example, like I mentioned, I've always had an issue with anxiety, you know, and so I used to just kind of walk around just trying to relax, trying to get rid of that anxiety and just chill out. And when I started doing IFS, it literally only took one session communicating with that anxious part. I realized just by doing this dialogue, which the therapist facilitated with this anxious part, like, oh, that anxious part, it's trying to keep me safe. And it is working so hard to try to keep me safe. Like it cares so much. And what I realized I developed a friendly, affectionate, even kind of a joking relationship with this anxious part, because I would talk to it and I would say, wow, you just, you never take a break. You are just so on the ball just always looking out for me and always looking out for dangers and the pitfalls and potential potholes in life. And so I, I learned to communicate with this part and to appreciate what it was trying to do for me and also to talk to it just with respect and curiosity. And the anxious part, again, it's a part with a lot of skills and abilities and a lot of drive. And it can learn to apply those same skills of constantly being on the lookout for danger and you know disaster to just keeping my, my life organized and making sure that I show up for appointments and just, you know, kind of channeling those same abilities in a better direction that serves me. And that serves all my other parts as well. So for me, it just had the very dramatic effect of instead of walking around at war with myself all the time, you know, and just trying to, trying to get rid of these problematic parts, you know, trying to get rid of the anxiety and trying to get rid of the, you know, the sadness or the, you know, the envy, just talking to these parts and realizing, wow, we're all on the same team and they love me. You know, they're like a bunch of flawed friends and they can learn and we can learn together. And once I start treating with them with respect everything inside my internal family system just eases up and wow, suddenly I feel kind of relaxed. And how did that happen? Nice. Let's switch gears for a bit and talk about your book. I've been posting, okay. <laughs> I've been posting frequently. It's in the show notes, but in the chat, the link to get it on Amazon. Is that where you prefer people buy it or are there other places to buy it? And there's different versions. So talk about the different versions. Yes, yes. Well, Amazon is a great place to buy it. Or at my website, christinemeliniebenson.com, I have links to all different um, places that the book can be bought. You can buy it through an independent bookstore in your area through different links. It's available at Barnes & Noble, even at Target. And I personally really like the, the paperback. Um, I just think the paperback came out really, really pretty. Um, Kindle is great just for convenience, but uh, paperback is what I would recommend. Um, I love the hardcover as well. Um, the only thing with the hardcover is it's got a couple of typos that didn't get didn't get corrected early on. Uh, but I, I love just as an author, you know, it's so great to see a hardcover book, you know, and they even had to have it at the library here in Nashville and they have it at the library in Boston. So it's, it's pretty cool. 
I'm curious, uh, what has the response to this book been in general from vegans in particular, and maybe even from non-vegans? Well, it's it's funny because the responses have been all over the map. It's it's very interesting for me as a writer to hear what people respond to. And so for some of the some of the non-vegans, you know, I've had a few comments where it's like, okay, you know, the story was fun. I liked the characters, but did you really have to shove the vegan thing down our throats? And then from the vegans, on the other hand, I've heard, I really wish the veganism was a little more prominent. Like it's it's cool that the vegan protagonist is, is vegan, but you know, I I wanted it to just ooze veganism was what one of my one of my friends had said. So it's it's funny from the vegans, it's like we would we wanted more vegan, and from the non-vegans, some of them, it's it was too much vegan. And then there's like a whole swath of people who, who I think didn't even notice that that protagonist was vegan. I remember at a book club discussion that I led here in in Nashville. I asked the group toward the end, I said, so what, which of the vegan foods mentioned in the book sounded the tastiest to you or the most appealing? And one of them said, oh, like, I don't even really remember, like, was there vegan stuff mentioned in the book? So people, people related to different things. But one thing that I found is that so many people from all different ages and demographics have just related to the theme of the book of figuring out who we are and what matters when the whole image we had of what our life was going to look like is suddenly just out the window. And I think that's a quandary that we face just as humans in general, but we also have to keep facing it because, you know, life changes and, you know, we think we've got all our ducks in a row and we're on this even path and then something else happens. And again, we have to go through the same journey. So again, to me, it's a journey of self-love and just committing to honor and be true to you. That's funny that you just use the saying ducks in a row because one day I'm going to, because you know, that's not a great animal. Right, thing. right. What that meant is line up the ducks in a row so they're easier to shoot. And, and I have yep. a friend, John Pierre, who he might have met at Vegetarian Summerfest, yes. Summerfest now. And so he tries really hard for people to not to change the language. And one day, I've often dreamed about writing a book and how we can, you know, like kill two birds with one stone, <laughs> like peel two grapes with one finger or something, because it's so funny how pervasive um, abusive animal language is in our, our culture. And yes. Yes. Because it's sayings that we just either, you know, we're not thinking about it that way. Right. 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 Yeah. right. Well, one of the things I love to write um, in addition to books and, and the legal writing I do is satire. So I love, you know, onion style, Babylon Bee type news satire. And one of the pieces I wrote basically pokes fun at kind of what you were just getting at. It, it's a it's a person. I think the title was health conscious environmentalists decides to kill two birds with one stone by going vegan. And so it's it's just a little, you know, just funny story that where this this, you know, vegan guy is talking about his journey and using all these animal metaphors and, you know, talking about more than one way to skin a cat and ducks in a row. And uh -huh. yeah, you're right. Our language is just so, Isn't it crazy? so 
is yeah. steeped in animal exploitation. Yeah. I didn't even notice that until it was pointed out to me. Cause you know, I don't mean, you know, I don't, I'm an ethical vegan 46 years. I don't mean anything by it, but it's just sayings that we've said over and over since we're little, you know? Yeah. 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 Even just like one, one little example is one of the people I interviewed on my podcast, vegan posse was a wonderful activist named John Oberg, whom you may know, but I talked, I remember in the title that I came up with for the podcast, I talked about um, John Oberg, who's harnessing the power of social media, you know, for the cause of animal liberation. And even, even the term harnessing, you know, is not a vegan phrase. So in the title, I put in parentheses, non-sentient social media, you know, so we, it's okay to harness something that's, that's not alive or sentient, but yeah, it's everywhere. And as a writer, I'm very attuned to those words. Yep. I'm curious how close to, to this book is your life? I mean, what did this happen to you? What happened to Julia? People ask that a lot. People ask that a lot. No, I was not. Well, I don't don't want to give away what happens in the book, but I was not engaged to be married to the love of my life, who also happens to be incredibly wealthy. And I didn't have uh, I, I didn't have her story. Um, I definitely bring like a lot of writers, especially with a first book, there is, you know, a big part of myself in Julia for sure. But no, the the details of the novel were not were not my life. Yeah. So is her, is her Starbucks um, order your Starbucks order? <laughs> I don't really go to Starbucks if I can help it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like some of the same foods for sure. For That's sure. <laughs> Why was marrying myself been described as an anti-romance romance? <laughs> yes. Well, that was a term that one of my author friends came up with. And when I heard it, I thought, yes, that's what it's all about. Because really it flips the notion of traditional romance on its head and highlights that at the end of the day, our most important relationship is the one we have with ourselves. So one thing that I get at in the book. So, you know, as, as I mentioned, I'm in grad school for clinical and mental health counseling. I do IFS coaching. Clearly I have a strong interest and passion for personal growth and development and psychology and, and healing. And what really has just crystallized for me is just how we really are in need of a self-love revolution. You know, it's time to get away from this outdated, antiquated notion that women's real lives begin <laughs> when a man, you know, ideally a tall, handsome, extremely wealthy man or other significant other, you know, deems us worthy by declaring his love and pledging his eternal commitment. You know, it's time for a movement of love that's not passive, but proactive and is within everyone's control right now. Because big in my life has been getting away from self-pity and self-victimization and also fear of abandonment, you know, because everybody's been abandoned. It's like, we all have abandonment issues. Join the club, you know, myself included. But what I realized for me is that when I look at the abandonment that's happening now in real time, 
generally speaking, the number one culprit was me. I was abandoning myself. When things got hard, when life got tough, I assumed it was because something was wrong with me. And so instead of loving and encouraging myself during those hard times, I would just leave myself in the dust emotionally. And so I realized, no, I need to commit and I want to commit to be there for me. And regardless of what the rest of the world does, regardless of what happens, I know that I'll be my staunchest ally. I'll be my steadfast friend. And so that self-love for me has just formed a foundation from which I can conduct my life. And it's just so, it's so much more relaxing for one walking around in the world because there's less at stake. You know, it's my self-worth isn't on the line in every interaction I have with another human being, because I've already got my own self-love. You know, I've, I've pledged that I've promised that. And so for me, again, like we're, we're in interesting times as always, but I think especially for women, just the empowerment that is available right here, right now. You know, we don't need anyone's permission to access this love that's within us right now and to pledge to be true to that. I just, I just think it's time. Nice. Thanks. Did you have any goals for your book from an advocacy perspective? I, I think as you know, any, any ardent, just deep rooted vegan, of course I wanted my book and and still want my book to normalize veganism through the arts. You know, I think I think every mention that we can give veganism to make it appealing to because again for me it's the best way to live. Like it's it's the genuine article. So I'm not trying to sell anybody, you know, a, a product um that's defective or you know pull one over on anybody. But with with art, I think art and creativity and just story is so powerful. I mean, of course, I'm a writer. I love stories and I love I love creating just these imaginary characters, these, you know, these all the people in this in this novel are just my my imaginary friends and I love them. And they're the ones who motivated me to get this book out into the world. And so just being able to show people what veganism looks like and just show people enjoying it or not enjoying it. Like perhaps the character that really rubbed you the wrong way. Um, I just, I just think it's really important. You know, it's not the only way. Um, of course it's not the only way, or I'm not going to even argue it's the most effective way of you know, getting people to go vegan, but I think it's huge because we need, we need a vegan presence in literature. And it's interesting, you know, I attend a lot of writers conferences and they teach all this information about craft. And it's very funny because one of the common techniques that we're taught as writers is, okay, if you want to show that a character is bad news. If you just want to make clear to the reader in a single instance that this guy's a jerk and he's no good, show them hurting an animal or, you know, doing something mean to an animal. And by the same token, if you want to show that a character is good or has a positive side to them, you know, do, do what's called a save the cat scene, you know, show this character saving a cat. And so it's so interesting to me how they have these tropes 
you know, for showing people's good and bad qualities. And yet most characters in most books are walking around eating hamburgers, eating chicken, eating veal parmesan, you know, wearing fur, wearing wool. And so just, again, the cognitive dissonance in books is off the charts. So anything I can do to, to diminish that and just, just start showing a different world, I think is, is something I can do. We all have our unique gifts and our unique varieties um, of activism that we're capable of doing. And so this is one way that I can help the cause and help animals. Are there any other vegan novels that you're aware of? There are some. So there was that, you know, wonderful book called Skinny Bitch. And then there was a novel related to that called Skinny Bitch Goes Vegan. There's another novel I've heard about. I have not read it yet, but I think it's something something to do with um, chemistry. Um, love is chemistry or, or may, maybe one of the people listening knows, but I've, I've heard that that protagonist is vegan. Um, so there, there are a handful. Um, I've heard of a, a few young adult writers um, who have vegan characters. So I think, I, I think the world is ready. You know, veganism is the issue of our times as I see it. I think for so many different reasons, you know, this, this is the way. And I think the world is ready for a likable, accessible, funny vegan protagonist. And that's who Julia is to me. So I'm just, I'm just very proud and very honored to, you know, just be, be part of this vegan movement in women's fiction. Did you choose all the names yourself? I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. I mean, was that fun? Because I always think about why characters are named certain names, like maybe after people you knew, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it was very fun. It was very fun. Um, there were a couple of characters who were loosely modeled after people. Well, one character in particular was loosely modeled after somebody I know. Another character I know in the book is modeled after stories I've heard of an actual person, but I have not met the actual person. Um, so it, it was very fun. And also, I <laughs> one thing, one little detail that's always bugged me as a reader is when names are like difficult or, or hard to pronounce or something like that. So I definitely just wanted to have names that people didn't stumble over every time they read them. Uh, but it was really fun. Yeah. Coming up with the names for sure. We have some questions actually that were submitted by some live viewers. This, this one is from anonymous. Yeah. They wrote it in, in your role as a holistic health coach. Do you have any specific recommendations on how to start up an interactive webpage, especially if someone isn't computer savvy or social media savvy? Do you have a webpage contact page? I couldn't find it when I searched your name. Hmm. Well, I do have a contact form on my website, christinemelaniebenson.com. So anonymous, you're welcome to reach out to me there. And as far as suggestions for you, I'm not super tech savvy myself. I think it, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Obviously there are all kinds of social media platforms that are very interactive. So, you know, Instagram, Twitter, um, TikTok, all, all of the usual social media places are, 
are suitable for setting up a group. I'm, I myself, um, I just, my natural inclination is away from social media. So, um, but I found the podcasting world a great way to connect. And these days podcasting is really, really accessible. And there are several interactivity tools on the podcasting platform that I use, which is Spotify. Um, so that's an option as well. You have, you have the opportunity to post Q and A's and, you know, invite comments from guests. So that's, that's an option, but, um, anonymous, feel free to reach out to me via my website and I'll help you however I can. Great. Thank you. And here's a question from Paul. What do you recommend that a person, who do you recommend that a person contact to ask questions regarding what kind of malpractice insurance medical is needed for running an online health coaching website? Hmm. You used to be an attorney, right? I, yeah, yeah, I still am an attorney. My, yeah, legal work is, is my day job um, until I launch my therapy practice and until marrying myself becomes a movie. Um, <laughs> I don't have any specific names, Paul. I think, I think though, that's a pretty standard question. I, I don't think you need anything complicated. So I, I think there's a simple answer. I, I don't happen to have it, but I, I don't think that should be hard to find. Great. Thank you. There is, I saw a question in the chat. Um, where did it go? Sorry. Well, while I'm looking for the one that I saw, are you going to become an IFS therapist? Is that what your goal is? Well, I'm going to become a therapist and I'm already an IFS coach. So I'm a trained practitioner and my information is available. If you look up IFS practitioners in Nashville, I'm, I'm listed there. Uh, so I see people virtually via Zoom for IFS sessions. And yes, I'm on the path to becoming a licensed professional counselor. Yeah. Oh, here's the question. Mona says, is your book available at Barnes and Noble? Yes, it is. Nice. And Elisa says, Chrissy is so inspiring. I ordered the book and I'm looking forward to reading it. And Susanna ordered it on Audible. And Jennifer says, what an amazing and beautiful woman. Christine, thank you for sharing. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Yeah, nice people on Sheffield. Yes, very nice. Nice. Well, so what's next for you? What is it next is the question. So right now I'm working on a companion guide to marrying myself that's going to focus explicitly on self-love. So I had given a talk here in Nashville on the concept of marrying yourself, committing to love and be true to you. And after that talk, several people came up to me and said, I would love to see a book on that subject. And that had been on my mind as well. So that's what I'm currently working on in terms of writing. There will be more novels in the future, but right now between the self-love companion guide, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of it as a self-love playbook. It'll be kind of, you know, a workbook, but I don't like the word work in there. So it's going to be a self-love playbook with exercise for just exploring yourself. Um, and I also need to finish up grad school and get, get licensed as a professional counselor. And my podcast is in full swing. 
Um, so those are the main focuses of my attention these days. Do you drop an episode every week? Yes. Yes. Nice. Any special day? It comes out at midnight on Thursday night, Friday morning. So it's available first thing Friday morning. Great. And Jennifer says, do you think your seizures could have been caused by the type of food you were eating, regardless whether or not you were binging on food? Yes, yes, I certainly do. Because I was I wasn't binging on arugula, like you said, Jeff AJ. And even when I did overeat on wholesome foods, like, you know, sweet potatoes and broccoli, and, you know, grains, um, those, those didn't trigger my seizures or anything. So it certainly was the, the type together with the, the massive quantity. I think I think my, my hypothesis is that it was really due to the massive blood sugar fluctuations because, you know, that massive intake of food in such a short period of time followed by the massive crash. I know some of my seizures were caused by, by low blood sugar. So that's, that's my best theory. But again, I'm, I'm just so grateful to be out of it. And it's, you know, in a, in a strange way, I'm grateful for those seizures because I don't know that I would be where I am today if I hadn't had those seizures, which gave me the willingness to start looking at what I was doing with food and getting on the path of personal development and, and healing and therapy and all of that good stuff. So it's, it's funny how things happen. It wasn't pretty, but again, I'm, I'm grateful because it taught me such a lesson to, just regarding our medical system, it taught me that again, I'm the only one that's going to want what's truly best for me. I know what I want. And in my case, I knew what I needed to do to get it. And again, if I had settled for what the doctors were offering me, I would have had a second rate life and I didn't want a second rate life. So it was just an invaluable lesson in trusting my own body, trusting my own experience. And again, keeping my eye on that prize and just putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, just the best lesson I could have learned. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun talking about your book, Marrying Myself. Can't wait for the movie to come out. Can you <laughs> take that or do they have to, does Hollywood have to come to you? <laughs> Good question. If if anybody has any has any leads or knows anybody, feel free to contact me. Yeah, I, I would really love to see Marrying Myself as a movie. For one, it's it's set in Boston where I used to live. And just so many wonderful visuals and the North End, which is the Italian section of Boston, which is where the book is set. It's just so charming and picturesque. I, I would really love to see it as a movie. So yeah, if anyone has any ideas or leads, um, bring them on. Maybe we can get a vegan actress to play Julia. Oh, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. You're a huge inspiration to me, especially now that I'm podcasting, just the quantity and the quality that you put out. You're well, you're uh, yeah, you're a firecracker for sure. And in a good way. Thank you so much. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time for Plant Fueled with Dr. Nikki Davis. And she, by popular demand, is going to show you all her favorite vegan things. Take care, everyone. Bye.